Chapter Five of Ticonderoga by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. One hour after the sun had risen again, three travellers took their way onward from the house of Mr. Prevost along a path which led to the northeast. Two other persons watched them from the door of the house, and two negro men and a negro woman gazed after them from a corner of the building which joined on to a low fence encircling the stable and poultry yard and running on round the well-cultivated kitchen garden the negro woman shook her head and looked sorrowful and sighed but said nothing the two men talked freely of the imprudence of master in suffering his son to go upon such an expedition Mr. Prevost and his daughter gazed in silence till the receding figures were hidden by the trees. Then the master of the house led Edith back, saying, "'God will protect him, my child. A parent was not given to crush the energies of youth, but to direct them.' In the meanwhile, Lord H. and his guide, Captain Brooks, according to his English name, or Woodchuck, in the Indian parlance, followed by Walter Prevost, made their way rapidly and easily through the wood. The two former were dressed in the somewhat anomalous attire which I have described in first introducing the worthy captain to the reader, but Walter was in the ordinary costume of the people of the province of that day, except inasmuch as he had his rifle in his hand and a large leathern wallet slung over his left shoulder. Each of his companions, too, had a rifle hung across the back by a broad leathern band, and each was furnished with a hatchet at his girdle, and a long pipe with a curiously carved stem in his hand. Although they were not pursuing any of the public provincial roads, and were consequently obliged to walk singly, the one following the other, yet Woodchuck, who led the way, had no difficulty in finding it, or in proceeding steadily. We are told by an old writer of those days, who, unlike many modern writers, witnessed all he described with his own eyes, that the Indian trails, or footpaths, were innumerable over that large tract of country, which the five nations called their long house, crossing and recrossing each other in every different direction, sometimes almost lost where the ground was hard and dry, sometimes indenting by the repeated pressure of many feet, the natural soil to the depth of thirty-six or forty inches. It was along one of these that the travellers were passing, and although a stump here and there, or a young tree springing up in the midst of a trail, offered an occasional impediment, it was rarely of such a nature as to retard the travellers in their course, or materially add to their fatigue. With the calm assurance and unhesitating rapidity of a practised woodsman, Brooks led his two companions forward without doubt as to his course. No great light had he, it is true, for though the sun was actually above the horizon, and now and then his slanting rays found their way through some more open space, and gilded the pathway, in general, the thick trees and underwood formed a shade, which at that early hour the light could hardly penetrate, and the sober morning was to these travellers still dressed almost in the dark hues of night. 
"'Set your steps in mine,' said Woodchuck, speaking in a whisper over his shoulder to Lord H. "'Then we shall be real Indians. "'Don't you know that when they go out on the war-path, as they call it, "'each man puts down his foot just where his leader put down his before? "'So come, dog, come, cat. "'No one can tell how many went to Jack Pilbury's barn.' "'But do you think there is any real danger?' asked Lord H. "'There is always danger in a dark wood and a dark eye,' answered Woodchuck with a laugh. "'But no more danger here than in Prevost's cottage, from either the one or the other, for you or for Walter. "'As for me, I am safe anywhere.' "'But you are taking strange precautions where there is no danger,' replied Lord H., "'who could not banish all doubts of his wild companion.' You speak in whispers and advise us to follow all the cunning devices of the Indians in a wood which we passed through fearlessly yesterday. I am just as fearless now as you were then, if you passed through this wood, answered Brooks in a graver tone, but you are not a woodsman or you'd understand better. What I mean, sir, is that we are so often in danger we think it best to act as if we were always in it, and never knowing how near it may be, to make sure as we can that we keep it at a distance. You cannot tell there is not an Indian eye in every bush you pass, and yet you'd chatter as loud as if you were in any lady's drawing-room. But I, though I know there is ne'er a one, don't speak louder than a grasshopper's hind legs for fear I would get into the habit of talking loud in the forest. "'There is some truth, my friend, I believe, in what you say,' replied Lord H. "'But I hear a sound growing louder and louder as we advance. "'It is the cataract, I suppose.' "'Yes, just the waterfall,' answered the other, in an indifferent tone. "'Down half a mile below it, Master Walter will find the boat that will take him to Albany. "'Then you and I snake up by the side of the river till we have gone as far as we have a mind to.' "'I shouldn't wonder if we got a shot at somewhat on four, "'a moose, or a painter, or a luxevier, or something of that kind. "'Pity we haven't got a canoe or a bateau, or something to put our game in.' "'In heaven's name, what do you call a luxevier? asked Lord H. "'Why, the French folks call it a loup-servier,' answered Brooks. "'I guess you never saw one. "'But he is not as pleasant as a pretty maid in a by-place, is he, Walter?' He puts himself up into a tree, and there he watches, looking full asleep, but with the devil that is in him moving every joint of his tail the moment he hears anything come trotting along, and when it is just under him he drops upon it, plump, like a rifle shot into a pumpkin. The conversation then fell off into a word or two spoken now and then, and the voice of the waters grew loud and more loud until Lord H. could hardly hear his own footfalls. The more practised ear of Brooks, however, caught every sound, and at length he exclaimed, "'What's alive? Why are you cocking your rifle, Walter?' "'Hush!' said the lad. "'There is something stealing on there, just behind the bushes. It is an Indian, I think, going on all fours. Look quietly out there.' "'More likely a bear,' replied Woodchuck in the same low tone which the other had used. "'I see. I see. It's not a bear, either. But it's not an Indian.' "'It's gone. No, there it is again. Hold hard. Let him climb. It's a painter. Here, Walter, come up in front. You shall have him. The cur smells fresh meat. He'll climb in an instant. 
There he goes. No, the critter's on again. We shall lose him if we don't mind. Quick, Walter, spread out there to the right. I will take the left, and we shall drive him to the water, where he must climb. You, Major, keep right on ahead. Mind, take the middle trail all along, and look up at the branches, or you may have him on your head. There, he's heading south. Quick, Walter, quick. Lord H. had as yet seen nothing of the object discovered by the eyes of his two companions, but he had sufficient of the sportsmen in his nature to enter into all their eagerness, and unslinging his rifle he followed the path or trail along which they had been proceeding, while Walter Prevost darted away into the tangled bushes on his right, and Woodchuck stole more quietly in among the trees on his left. He could hear the branches rustle, and for nearly a quarter of a mile could trace their course on either side of him by the various little signs, of now a waving branch, now a slight sound. Once, and only once, he thought he saw the panther cross the trail, but it was at a spot peculiarly dark, and he did not feel at all sure that fancy had not deceived him. The roar of the cataract in the meantime increased each moment, and it was evident to the young nobleman that he and his companions on their different courses were approaching more and more closely to some large stream towards which it was the plan of good Captain Brooks to force the object of their pursuit. At length, too, the light became stronger, and he heard the report of a rifle, then a fierce, snarling sound, and then a shout from Walter Prevost. Knowing how dangerous the wounded panther is, the young officer, without hesitation, darted away into the brush to aid Edith's brother, for by this time it was in that light that he generally thought of him, and the lad soon heard his approach and guided him by his voice, calling, "'Here! Here!' There was no alarm or agitation in his tones. They were rather those of triumph, and a moment after, as he caught sight of his friend coming forward, he added, "'He's a splendid beast. I must have the skin off him.' Lord H. drew nigh, somewhat relaxing his speed when he found there was no danger, and in another minute he was by the side of the lad, who was quietly recharging his rifle, while at some six or seven yards' distance lay a large panther of the American species, mortally wounded and quite powerless of evil, but not yet quite dead. "'Keep away from him! Keep away!' cried Walter, as the young nobleman approached. They sometimes tear on terribly, even at the last gasp. "'Why, he is nearly as big as a tiger,' said Lord H. "'He is a splendid fellow,' answered Walter joyfully. "'One might live a hundred years in England without finding such game.' Lord H. smiled and remained for a moment or two till the young man's rifle was reloaded, gazing at the beast in silence. Suddenly, however, they both heard the sound of another rifle on the left, and Walter exclaimed, "'Woodchuck has got one, too!' but the report was followed by a yell very different from the snarl or growl of a wounded beast. "'That's no panther's cry!' exclaimed Walter Prevost, his cheek turning somewhat pale. "'What can have happened?' "'It sounded like a human voice,' said Lord H., listening, "'like that of someone in sudden agony. "'I trust our friend the woodchuck has not shot himself by some accident.' It was not a white man's voice, said Walter, bending his ear in the direction from which had come the sounds. But all was still, and the young man raised his voice and shouted to his companion. No answer was returned, however, 
and Lord H., exclaiming, "'We had better seek him at once. He may need help,' darted away toward the spot whence his ear told him the shot had come. "'A little more to the right, my lord, a little more to the right,' said Walter. "'You will hit on a trail in a minute.' And raising his voice again, he shouted, "'Woodchuck! Woodchuck!' with evident alarm and distress. He was right in the supposition that they should soon find some path. They quickly struck an Indian trail, crossing that on which they had been previously proceeding, and leading in the direction in which they wished to go. Both then hurried on with greater rapidity, Walter rather running than walking, and Lord H. following with his rifle cocked in his hand. They had not far to go, however, for the trail soon opened upon a small piece of grassy savannah, lying close upon the river's edge, and in the midst of it they beheld a sight which was terrible enough in itself, but which afforded less apprehension and grief to the mind of Lord H. than to that of Walter Prevost, who was better acquainted with the Indian habits and character. About ten yards from the mouth of the path appeared the powerful form of Captain Brooks, with his folded arms leaning on the muzzle of his discharged rifle. He was as motionless as a statue, his brow contracted, his brown cheek very pale, and his eyes bent forward upon an object lying upon the grass before him. It was the form of a dead Indian, weltering in his blood. The dead man's head was bare of all covering except the scalp-lock. He was painted with the war-colours, and in his hand, as he lay, he grasped the tomahawk, as if it had been raised in the act to strike the moment before he fell. To the eyes of Lord H., his tribe or nation was an undiscovered secret, but certain small signs and marks on his garb, and even in his features, showed Walter Prevost at once that he was not only one of the five nations, but an Ida. The full and terrible importance of the fact will be seen by what followed. For some two minutes the three living men stood silent in the presence of the dead, and Walter exclaimed in a tone of deep grief, "'Alas, Woodchuck, what have you done?' "'Saved my scalp,' answered Brooks sternly, and fell into silence again. There was another long silence, and then Lord H., mistaking in some degree the causes of the man's strong emotion, laid his hand upon the hunter's arm, saying, "'Come away, my friend. Why should you linger here?' "'It's no use,' answered Woodchuck gloomily. "'He had a woman with him, and it will soon be known all through the tribe.' "'But for your own safety,' said Walter, "'you had better fly. "'It is very sad indeed. "'What could make him attack you?' "'An old grudge, Master Walter,' answered Brooks, "'seating himself deliberately on the ground "'and laying his rifle across his knee. "'I knew the critter well. "'The striped snake, they called him, and a snake he was.' He tried to cheat and to rob me, and I made it plain to the whole tribe. Some laughed and thought it fair, but old Black Eagle scorned and rebuked him, and he has hated me ever since. He has been long watching for this, and now he has got it. "'Well, well,' said Walter, "'what's done cannot be undone, and you had better get away as fast as may be, for Black Eagle told me he had left three scouts behind to bring tidings in case of danger.' "'and we cannot tell how near the others may be.' "'This was one of them,' answered Brooks, "'still keeping his seat and gazing at the Indian. "'But what is safety to me, Walter? "'I can no more roam the forests. "'I can no more pursue my way of life. 
I must go into dull and smoky cities and plod amongst thieving, cheating crowds of white men. The rifle and the hatchet must be laid aside for ever. The forest grass must know my foot no more. Flowers and green leaves and rushing streams and the broad lake and the mountain top are lost and gone. The watch under the deep boughs and by the silent waters. Close pressed amidst the toiling herd I shall become sordid and low and filthy as they are. My free nature lost and jives upon my spirit. All life's blessings are gone from me. Why should I care for life? There was something uncommonly plaintive, mournful and earnest in his tones, and Lord H. could not help feeling for him, although he did not comprehend fully the occasion of his grief. But, my good friend, he said, I cannot perceive how your having slain this Indian in your own defence can bring such a train of miseries upon you. You would not have killed him if he had not attacked you. Alas for me! Alas for me! was all the answer the poor man made. "'You do not know their habits, sir,' said Walter in a low voice. "'They must have blood for blood. "'If he stays here, if he ever returns, "'go where he will in the Indian territory, "'they will attack him. "'They will follow him day and night. "'He will be amongst them like one of the wild beasts "'whom we chase so eagerly, "'pursued from place to place "'with the hatchet always hanging over his head.' There is no safety for him but far away in the provinces beyond those towns that Indians ever visit. So persuade him to come away and leave the body. He can go down with me to Albany and thence make his way to New York or Philadelphia. For some minutes Brooks remained deaf to all arguments. His whole mind and thoughts seemed occupied with the terrible conviction that the wild scenes and the free life which he enjoyed so intensely were lost for ever. Suddenly, however, when Lord H. was just about to give up in despair the task of persuading him, he started up as if some new thought struck him, and gazing first at Walter and then at the young officer, he exclaimed, "'But I am keeping you here, and you too may be murdered. The death spot is upon me, and it will spread to all around. I am ready to go. I will bear my fate as well as I can, but it is very, very hard. Come, let us be gone quick.' Say, I will charge my rifle first. Who knows how soon we may need it for such bloody work again. All his energy seemed to have returned in a moment, and it deserted him not again. He charged his rifle with wonderful rapidity, tossed it under his arm, and took a step as if to go. Then, for a moment, he paused, and advancing close to the dead Indian, gazed at him sternly. "'Oh, my enemy!' he cried. "'Thou saidst thou wouldst have revenge!' and thou hast had it, far more bitter than if thy hatchet had entered into my skull, and I were lying in thy place. Turning round as soon as he had spoken, he led the way back along the trail, murmuring rather to himself than to his companions. The instinct of self-preservation is very strong. Better for me had I let him slay me. I know not how I was fool enough to fire. "'Come, Walter, we must get round the falls, where we shall find some bateaux that will carry us down.' He walked along for some five minutes in silence, and suddenly looked round to Lord H., exclaiming, "'But what's to become of him? How is he to find his way back again? Come, I will go back with him. It matters not if they do catch me and scalp me. I do not like to be dogged and tracked and followed and taken unawares. I can but die at last.' 
I will go back with him as soon as you are in the boat, Walter. No, no, Woodchuck, that will not do, replied the lad. You forget that if they found you with him, they will kill him too. I will tell you how we will manage it. Let him come down with us to the point, and there is a straight road up to the house, and we can get one of the Bateau's men to go up with him and show him the way, unless he likes to go on with me to Albany. I cannot do that, replied Lord H., for I promised to be back at your father's house by tomorrow night, and matters of much importance may have to be decided. But I can easily land at the point, as you say, whatever point you may mean, and find my way back. As for myself, I have no fears. There seem to be but a few scattered parties of Indians of different tribes roaming about, and I trust that anything like general hostility is at an end for this year at least. "'In Indian warfare the danger is the greatest, I have heard, when it seems the least,' replied Walter Prevost. "'But from the point to the house, some fourteen or sixteen miles, the road is perfectly safe, for it is the one on which large numbers of persons are passing to and from Albany.' "'It will be safe enough,' said Woodchuck. "'That way is always quiet, and besides, a wise man and a powerful one could travel at any time from one end of the long house to the other without risk.' unless there were special cause. It is bad shooting we have had to-day, Walter, but still I should have liked to have the skin of that panther. He seemed to me an unextinguishable fine critter. He was a fine critter, and that I know, for I shot him, Woodchuck, said Walter Prevost, with some pride in his achievement. I wanted to send the skin to Otetsa, but it cannot be helped. "'Let us go and get it now,' cried Woodchuck, with the ruling passion strong in death. "'Tis but a step back. Darn those Injuns! Why should I care?' But both his companions urged him forward, and they continued their way through woods, skirting the river for somewhat more than two miles, first rising gently to a spot where the roar of the waters was heard distinctly, and then, after descending, rising again to a rocky point midway between the highest ground and the water-level, where a small congregation of huts had been gathered together, principally inhabited by boatmen and surrounded by a stout palisade. The scene at the hamlet itself had nothing very remarkable in it. Here were women sitting at the door, knitting and sewing, men lounging about or mending nets or making lines, children playing in the dirt as usual, both inside and outside of the palisade. The traces of more than one nation could be discovered in the features, as well as in the tongues of the inhabitants, and it was not difficult to perceive that here had been congregated, by the force of circumstances into which it is not necessary to inquire, sundry fragments of Dutch, English, Indian, and even French, races all bound together by a community of object and pursuit. The approach of the three strangers did not in any degree startle the good people from their idleness or their occupations. The carrying trade was then a very good one, especially in remote places where travelling was difficult, and these people could always make a very tolerable livelihood without any very great or continuous exertion. The result of such a state of things is always very detrimental to activity of mind or body, and the boatmen, though they sauntered up round Lord H., and his companions, divining that some profitable piece of work was before them, showed amazing indifference as to whether they would undertake it or not. But that which astonished Lord H. the most was to see the deliberate coolness 
with which Woodchuck set about making his bargain for the conveyance of himself and Walter to Albany. He sat down upon a large stone within the enclosure, took a knife from his pocket and a piece of wood from the ground, and begun cutting the latter with the former with as tranquil and careless an air as if there were no heavy thought upon his mind, no dark memory behind him, no terrible fate dogging him at the heels. But Woodchuck and Walter were both well known to the boatman, and though they might probably have attempted to impose upon the inexperience of the lad, they knew they had met their match in the shrewdness of his companion, and were not aware that any circumstance rendered speed more valuable to him than money. The bargaining, then, was soon concluded, but Captain Brooks was not contented till he had bargained also for the services of two men in guiding Lord H. back to the house of Mr. Prevost. This was undertaken for a dollar apiece, however, and then the whole party proceeded to the bank of the river, where a boat was soon unmoored, and Walter and his companion set forth upon their journey, not, however, till Lord H. had shaken the latter warmly by the hand, and said a few words in the ear of Captain Brooks, adding, "'Walter will tell you more, and how to communicate with me.' "'Thank you, thank you,' replied the hunter, wringing his hand hard. "'A friend in need is a friend indeed. I do not want it, but I thank you as much as if I did. But you shall hear if I do, for somehow I guess you are not the man to say what you don't mean.' After seeing his two companions row down the stream a few yards, the young nobleman turned to the boatman who accompanied him, saying, "'Now, my lads, I want to make a change of our arrangements, and to go back the short way by which we came.' I did not interrupt our good friend Woodchuck, because he was anxious about my safety. There are some Indians in the forest, and he feared I might get scalped. However, we shot a panther there, which we could not say to skin, as their business in Albany was pressing. Now I want the skin, and I am not afraid of the Indians. Are you? The men laughed, and replied in the negative, saying that there were none of the red men there but four or five Oneidas and Mohawks, but adding that the way, though shorter, was much more difficult and bushy, and therefore they must have more pay. Lord H., however, was less difficult to deal with than Captain Brooks, and yielded readily to their demands. Each of the men then armed himself with a rifle, and took a bag of parched corn with him, and the three set out. Lord H. undertook to guide them to the spot where the panther lay, and not a little did they wonder at the accuracy and precision with which his military habits of observation enabled him to direct them step by step. He took great care not to let them approach the spot where the dead Indian had been slain, but turning about a quarter of a mile to the south, led them across the thicket to within a very few yards of the object of his search. It was soon found, when they came near the place, and about half an hour was employed in taking off the skin and packing it up for carriage. "'Now,' said Lord H., Will you two undertake to have this skin properly cured and dispatched by the first trader going west to the Anida village? The men readily agreed to do so, if well paid for it, but of course required further directions, saying there were a dozen or more Anida villages. It will be sure to reach its destination, said Lord H., if you tell the bearer to deliver it to Otetsa, which I believe means the Blossom, the daughter of Black Eagle, the Sachem. "'Say that it comes from Walter Prevost.' "'Oh, aye,' 
answered the boatman. It shall be done, but we shall have to pay the man who carries it. The arrangement in regard to payment was soon made, though it was somewhat exorbitant. But to ensure that the commission was faithfully executed, Lord H. reserved a portion of the money to be given when he heard that the skin had been delivered. The rest of the journey was passed without interruption or difficulty, and at an early hour of the evening the young nobleman once more stood at the door of his fellow-countryman's house. End of chapter 5